Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. As I was thinking and praying about where we could go in God's Word today that would provide an appropriate corporate launch for us as a church into a new year, the Lord directed my thoughts to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The pastoral staff has been reading through a little book called Authentic Ministry by Michael Reeves. He's the same guy who wrote uh, Rejoice and Tremble, uh, the book that we just went through in our Iron Men. But Reeves had the privilege of being mentored by and serving alongside the late British pastor theologian John Stott, who's one of my personal heroes. And in a chapter titled Pray Boldly, Reeves recounts an experience that Stott had at a village church that he attended while on holiday, what they call vacation in Britain. This is what Stott said about his experience at that church, when, he came, when we came to the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So we prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. It took 20 seconds. I said to myself... It's a village church with a village God. Well, the church in Ephesus was no village church with a village God, which is evidenced by the bold, even audacious prayers that Paul prayed on behalf of its members. And this is actually the second prayer that Paul included in this letter. If you turn back to chapter one, as often Paul began his letter telling them that he was praying for them in verse 16. I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Again, Paul would often begin his letters much like this, um, not just telling 
his readers that he was praying for them, but telling them the specific requests for which he prayed. We see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We don't have time to read those. But these passages provide us a glimpse into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. And not just into the consistency of his prayers, but the content of his prayers, which were singularly focused on the spiritual growth and progress of the people that he loved so dearly. Now, surely Paul prayed for their physical needs, but the focus of his recorded prayers in Scripture is spiritual needs, which should inform us as to how we should pray for others and how we should ask others to pray for us. Because most of the time, I think we pray for or seek prayer for our physical needs, like our health or our finances, our relationships or jobs or upcoming tests. And too often, our personal and corporate prayer times are are dominated by requests and petitions for people in the hospital or out of a job or in need of financial provision or in a difficult relationship or sometimes it's somebody's distant relative's ingrown toenail. Now, I'm being facetious there, but making the point that it's okay to pray for these kinds of things, obviously, but we need to learn to also pray for and seek prayer for spiritual issues in our life and the lives of others. And like Paul, we need to be most concerned about praying for our spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of others. Paul's prayer in this passage is really a prayer for spiritual growth. This is one of the the greatest, boldest prayers ever prayed by a pastor for his people, and I think it serves as a model for how we should pray for ourselves and how we should pray for one another. And so, by way of example, I want us to look this morning at these five prayer requests which Paul shared here which are essential to our spiritual growth and maturity. Five prayer requests that are essential to our spiritual growth and maturity. And each of these requests, as you'll see, is sequential. They they each build on the foundation of the previous one. And if there was a picture I could paint for you to get into your head, Uh, as we uh, walk through these verses together, it's like we're ascending a a staircase with five steps that enable us to to climb higher and and closer to God. And so let's look at these five prayer requests one at a time. Number one, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be strengthened by the Spirit's power. That they would be strengthened by the Spirit's power. Now let's get into this text here. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, he's referring back to something that he's already mentioned. I think the wider context, if you notice chapter 3, verse 1, he says, for this reason. He says the same exact thing. And it's interesting, if you know anything about the first part of chapter 3, it's really just one big parenthetical statement. In other words, he kind of goes on a rabbit trail there in the first part of verse 1, all the way down to really verse 13, talking about the mystery of the church that God had called him to reveal or unveil uh, to the believers in the New Testament. And so he's praying here that 
that these believers would live out their new position in Christ that he's talked about, that they had been made alive. They were once dead in Christ. Now they were made alive in Christ at the beginning of chapter two. Um, but also their new position corporately, that, that now they're part of this new group. They're not Jews, they're not Gentiles. They're this new thing called the church. And then the immediate context, notice verse 11. He says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So Paul was exercising this confident, bold access to God that that every believer has through prayer. And he's modeling this for us now when he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father because we now have access through faith in Christ to God and we can be bold, we can be confident when we come before him. So let me show you what that looks like. And so Paul said he bowed his knees, which was not the customary position for a Jew, by the way, to pray. If you've ever been to Israel or you've seen pictures or videos of the Wailing Wall, there are no Jews kneeling down. They might be sitting down because they stay there for a long time and need to give their legs a break, but most of the time they're standing right up against the wall. And sometimes they're doing this, right? We watch this. They they, they typically stand. And so the fact that Paul knelt down when he prayed demonstrated the intense passion and emotion in his heart. But notice he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul didn't view God like the pagans viewed their gods who they would have to come before trembling, hoping to appease Paul came before God with great reverence, with great respect and awe, but he knew he was coming before a tender, loving, concerned father who always accepts those he's adopted as his kids. Paul loved to refer to God as Abba. Galatians chapter 4 Verse six, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And we know that that expression, Abba, was an intimate term used by Jewish children to address their daddy. And so Paul says, I come before my heavenly father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Probably the better way to understand that is not from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, but from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. Specifically referring to the household of God. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul said that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. In other words, God is the father of all the saints throughout all the ages, including those who are now dead and in heaven and those who are still alive here on this earth. And I clarify that because liberal theologians use verses like this one to teach what's called universalism. That God is the father of everyone. We're all God's children and that means we're all going to heaven. Well, as creator, God is the father of all mankind According to Acts 17, verse 28, Paul said, for in him we live and move and exist and we are his offspring. But as savior, God is the father of only those who he has chosen to adopt 
as his own through faith in Christ. He's already mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. The reality is all of us are born children of Satan. In John 8, 44, Jesus referred to the Pharisees or, and was talking to the Pharisees and re- said, you are of your father, the devil. That applies to everyone who has not been born again because that is the requirement. If you want to be a child of God and not a child of Satan, you must be born again. By repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, John 1.12, as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So you need to become a child of God in regards to your salvation. But notice how he goes on here, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, and so now he's getting to the request stage here, phase, where he's going to begin making his requests, but notice all of these requests come from a storehouse of riches. Notice he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And that's really a, a phrase that um, uh, Paul is very fond of. In fact, he's been using it um, multiple times from the very beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 7. He said that God made us alive in Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So when he comes to pray, he's praying that God would grant these things out of the riches of his glory or according to the riches of his glory. So this is kind of the overarching statement. And he's, I think, referencing the fact here that as God's children and as co-heirs with Christ, we have unlimited resources for living the Christian life. And so Paul had every confidence to, and boldness to pray what he's about to pray and to ask for the things he's about to ask for because he knows that it's all coming from the riches of his glory, which are limitless. And so what is his first request? Again, to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says um, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So he's referring to the Holy Spirit, obviously here, who gives us the strength that we need to live the Christian life. Thankfully, God never intended us to live our lives as Christians in our own strength, but in the strength that he provides through the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus himself, before he ascended to heaven, said, hey guys, uh, just so you know, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Don't be discouraged. I got good news for you. I'll be back. But in the meantime, I'm going to send a helper, somebody who's going to help you live out all these things that, uh, that I've been teaching you and remind you of these things and give you more insight into these things and empower you to serve 
me and to spread the gospel throughout the world. And so when we get saved, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, baptizes us, seals us, and indwells us. And from that moment on, we can rely on his permanent abiding presence in our lives. And we never have to worry that we will do something so bad that the Holy Spirit will leave us. In other words, you can't lose your salvation. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul talks about that in the next chapter, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can also quench the Holy Spirit according to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we quench the Holy Spirit, we limit or lessen his power in our lives. And that's why Paul went on to say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that we are to be filled with the Spirit, which means yielding more and more of our lives to his control. And I think this is important for us to to understand here that, that being filled with the Spirit isn't about getting more of the Holy Spirit. You, you, you got all the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation. But it takes a lifetime of sanctification for the Spirit to get all of us. That's the point here. And I, I find it interesting that when you compare Ephesians 5, 18, uh, and the results of being filled with the Spirit, which is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And you flip over to Colossians and you compare that with the results of being filled with the word of God or letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We talk about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And here in Colossians 3, Paul's talking about being indwelt by the word of God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Doesn't that sound a bit familiar? And I think the point is this, that being filled with the Holy Spirit is synonymous with being filled with the Word of God. And and I say that to take this being filled with the Holy Spirit out of the ethereal, the spiritual realm, that seems so nebulous. It really comes down to this, that as we study and submit our lives to God's Word, we are at the same time submitting our life to God's Spirit. And the more our lives are filled with the Bible, the more our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul even said in in chapter 6, verse 17, that that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. They're they're essentially one and the same. Notice back in chapter 3, verse 16, he says that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. This is the part that we can't see. This is the hidden person of the heart that is imperishable, 1 Peter 3, 4. All of us are made up of two parts. We have the physical and the spiritual. We have our bodies and we have our souls or spirits. And we can't see the spiritual part of us, but that's where God is doing all this work through his word and through his spirit to strengthen us and empower us and revitalize us and to to grow us and mature us spiritually. 
And that's why as we, we grow older and our bodies deteriorate and we become weaker, at the same time, our soul should be growing stronger and healthier. And so ideally, when our body finally gives out and dies, that's when we should have reached our peak spiritually. 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So Paul knew that the only way these believers and us are able to live obedient, productive lives that are pleasing to God and and, and, and being able to resist temptation and endure trials and mortify sin and share the gospel and minister to one another and be conformed to the image of Christ, the only way that would be possible is to rely upon the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so we prayed that they would be strengthened by the Spirit's power. Secondly, he prayed that the Ephesians, believers there, would be surrendered to Christ's control. They would be surrendered to Christ's control. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. To dwell in your hearts, to live in, to settle down in, or perhaps the best way to think about it is being at home in your heart. Now again, the, the Ephesians were believers. So Paul wasn't praying that Jesus would come into their hearts. He, he was already there because they were already saved. Christ comes to dwell in our hearts the moment that we confess our sins and place our faith alone in his death and resurrection for our salvation. But being there and being at home there are two different things. Perhaps the best way to understand what Paul was praying here is to think about the difference when you go over to one of your family members' home or a close friend's home, like a lot of you did during the holidays, uh, as opposed to someone you, you really didn't know that well. Like maybe you went over to, you had an office party or you went to somebody's house and you didn't really know them that well and it was a totally different experience. At your family's house or your friend's house, you feel very comfortable. You put up your feet on the coffee table, you help yourself to stuff in the refrigerator without asking, right? The conversation flows freely as you talk about all the things that you have in common. The time flies by and you have to force yourself to leave. But at a stranger's house, you feel a bit more awkward You're careful where you sit, how you sit. You typically refuse any offers of food or drink that they give you. The conversation may drag at times because you don't have much in common and it seems like an eternity before you can leave. Well, which one of those two scenarios best describes your relationship with Christ? Like when you have your quiet time, does it feel like you're spending time with your best friend or a stranger. It should be our goal to make Christ feel completely at home in our hearts. And as we allow him to have more and more control over our heart, the more comfortable he feels there. And again, I think this is a good reminder that Jesus didn't come just to live in our hearts, but to take over. The Bible 
refers to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's who he is. And when we receive him by faith and commit our lives to follow him, he must be that in our lives. He must be our Lord and Savior. He doesn't just come to save us. He comes to control us and to clean out every nook and cranny of our hearts so that he feels comfortable living there. How many of you have read that little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home? It's a great little booklet. You're missing out if you haven't read it yet. Um, remember reading this with our kids when they were little. In fact, our daughter Hannah still references it from time to time. But the author, Robert Munger, likens the, the Christian life to a house. And he describes how Jesus goes through the entire house, room by room, seeking to clean out all the sinful trash. And he goes through the library of our mind and the, the dining room of our appetites and the living room of our relationships and the workshop of our skills and our talents and the playroom of our entertainment. And the divine cleaning process climaxes at the hall closet. And Jesus confronts the owner of the house about the terrible odor coming out of the closet, which represents the hidden sin in our lives. Again, the simple yet profound point of this little book is that only when Jesus has been given access to every area of our lives can he settle down and be at home in our hearts. So I ask you this morning, (coughs) do you have any rooms or areas in your life that are off limits to Christ? Things that you're holding back from him, holding him off from addressing in your life. Paul was praying that the lordship of Jesus Christ would extend to every area of our lives, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, where we go, who we spend time with, how we spend our money, how we eat, what we eat, all the things that might be going through your minds right now at the beginning of the year as you're thinking about resolutions and things that you want to change. Listen, Jesus wants to be smack dab in the middle of all that. We must surrender all these things to Christ's control. Well, there's a third request that Paul makes here for the Ephesians, and that is that they would be sustained by Christ's love. That they would be sustained by Christ's love. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Those two words there, being rooted and grounded, are great words. The first one, rooted, is an agricultural term. The idea there is that love is the soil which supports and nourishes our lives. The word grounded is an architectural term. Again, the idea there that love is the foundation on which our lives are built. And so Paul was simply praying that our lives would be firmly established in love. Like Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the foundation of the Christian life, loving God, loving others. That should become a way of life for us. Jesus himself set the example of this lifestyle of love. He selflessly and sacrificially served us, ultimately by dying for us. 
And we should love others in the same way. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But the only way we can love others like Jesus loves us is to truly comprehend how much Christ loves us. And that's why Paul prayed what he did there, being rooted and grounded in love, and that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. That you'd be able to get a handle on it, you'd be able to grasp it. With all the saints, Paul wanted every believer to fully comprehend Christ's amazing love for them. And he used these directional terms, breadth, length, height, depth, just to refer to the infinite dimensions of Christ's love that extends in every direction as far as the eye can see. And then you have to chuckle when you get to verse 19 when he says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. In other words, Paul is admitting here that Christ's love for us is beyond our human ability to fully understand. And yet he's bold enough to pray the impossible here. He prays that we would be able to know the unknowable and to fathom the unfathomable. You gotta love Paul. And again, I think the idea here is that no matter how high the mountain is that we must climb, Christ's love for us is higher. No, no matter how wide the ocean is that we must cross, Christ's love for us is wider. No matter how deep the valley is that we must walk through, Christ's love for us is deeper. No matter how long the pain and the suffering lasts, Christ's love for us is longer. There's a story from the days of Napoleon as he was marching across the known world and his armies unearthed an underground dungeon that had been used during the Spanish Inquisition. And they found the remains of a prisoner who'd been in prison there for his faith in Christ. And the body had long since decayed. All that remained was a chain fastened around an ankle bone. But the prisoner left a powerful witness because on the wall of his tiny cell, this faithful soldier of Christ had, has scratched this, this rough image, a crude image of a cross with four words surrounding it in Spanish. Above the cross was the Spanish word for height. Below it was the word for depth. To the left, the word width, and to the right, the word length. So in the midst of that man's suffering, he grasped the magnitude of Christ's love, which was ultimately demonstrated at the cross. And that's what sustained him in that prison. He was an answer to Paul's prayer. There's a fourth request here. Paul prayed that they would be saturated by God's character. They would be saturated by God's character. Again, notice verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, that you might be completely full of God. We, we talk about being filled with rage. In other words, you're completely dominated by anger. Well, 
To be filled with God means to be completely dominated by God. And that, that expression, the fullness of God, be filled up with all the fullness of God, that's just a, a way to describe all of God's perfections, all of his attributes, everything we know to be true about God. And there, there's some of God's attributes that cannot be shared with us, that, that cannot be transferred to us. Theologians refer to these as God's incommunicable attributes, like his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. You'll never be any of those three, by the way. Just so you know. Sorry to discourage you this morning, but you're never gonna be omnipresent. You're never going to be omniscient. But there are some of God's attributes that you can share, that can be transferred to us. They're referred to as his communicable attributes. I remember them uh, simply by likening them to a communicable disease. This is something that can be caught, something that can be transferred or passed on to someone else, like God's love, God's grace, his mercy, his wisdom, his goodness, his faithfulness, all of these things we can replicate. And so God wants to pour his character qualities into us so slowly but surely our character reflects his character. And as he keeps pouring and pouring his life into us until we're completely saturated with him and there will be nothing left of us, we'll be emptied of self and filled with God. If you've ever had a dirty bucket of water, maybe after washing the car, I mean, you can, there's two ways you can fix that. You can just dump it out or you can just stick the hose in there and just keep pumping clean, fresh water into that bucket and eventually what's gonna happen? All that sludge and junk is gonna get forced out and you're gonna, over time, have a bucket full of clean, fresh water. And that's essentially the process of sanctification, right? It's that the clean water hose of God's word and his spirit working in us flushing out all that sinful sludge in our lives. And his ultimate purpose in bringing us to himself is to glorify himself by making us like himself. And that process won't be complete until we get to heaven. Now this doesn't mean we'll become God in heaven. Throughout eternity we'll always be a creature but one who perfectly reflects the glory of God the way we were created to originally. And furthermore, the fullness of God that we experience in our lives here on this earth and even in heaven is minuscule compared to that which fills God. I mean, we don't use thimbles too much anymore, but you know what a thimble is, right? A lady would put it on her finger when she's sewing so she doesn't stick her fingers, just a little thing. I mean, it's like, we know Dixie Cups. That's like, this is a thimble. Throw that thimble out in the ocean. It'll fill with water. But compared to the rest of the ocean, it's minuscule. Just to make this practical, Paul equated godliness to Christ's likeness. Chapter four, verse 13 that we would grow in the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In the book, book of Colossians, Paul said that Jesus um, was, was um, it, it, it pleased the Father for all the fullness, all his fullness to dwell in him. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So the, the more you and I are like Jesus, the more we're like God. 
which is the essence of spiritual growth. The more we're like Christ, the more we're like God. That's, that's the goal of the Christian life. To be saturated by God's character. And then there's one more request here. And that is that we would be stunned by God's power and glory. That we would be stunned by God's power and glory. And I love this. This is so typical of Paul. After dwelling on the unfathomable riches of our life in Christ, he was enraptured with wonder and love and awe. And his prayer builds to this glorious crescendo as he bursts forth with this magnificent doxology. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. And so Paul is climbing up the staircase and he wants us to go with him and, and we, 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 he leads us up the first step and then this is the second step and the third step and the fourth step and here we finally take the fifth and final step which places us at the top of the staircase where we have a stunning view of the awesome power and glory of God. It's like when you hike, if you've ever hiked and you, 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 you finally summit that mountain and you see the expanse and it just takes your breath away. It's stunning to see And the point is, the things that Paul have been ta- has been talking about, the requests he's, he's been making are, are vast, they're bold, they're, they're seemingly impossible. And I think that's why he closed this prayer by reminding himself and the Ephesians and us that God is the God of the impossible. And he's able to do all these things that he's prayed for and more. And it's like he's, he, Paul's stacking words on top of words to convey God's stunning ability to not only do more than we ask for, but also to do things that are beyond what we could even imagine. I mean, just look at the way it lays out there. God is able to do. God is able to do exceedingly. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And isn't it true? God always answers our prayers far beyond our expectations, doesn't he? There's absolutely no limit to what God can do. His power and his resources are unlimited. We are the ones who limit him. There's all sorts of verses in the Old and Note, both the Old and New Testament about nothing is impossible for God, nothing is too difficult for God. So the question I guess we should ask ourselves is are we content to just ask God for basic things? Which we should. Or are you bold enough to ask him for some big things? Some things that might in your mind be like borderline impossible things. Why do we ask so little from such a great God? John Newton said it this way, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. God is able to do things beyond our wildest dreams, but few of us as Christians enjoy the privilege of seeing him do these great things in our lives because we never reach this level on the staircase of spiritual growth. We 
we're still down on the first step, trying to, to live our lives in our own strength, refusing to surrender every area of our life to Christ's control and not loving others selflessly and sacrificially, not striving after Christ's likeness. And so we spend our lives at the bottom of the staircase, looking up at the top, wondering what's up there. But as we faithfully pursue these steps of spiritual growth, then there's no limit what God can do in and through us. Because notice he talks about this power according to the power that works within us. This is that resurrection power he mentioned back in chapter one that acted upon us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made us alive and turned us into his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared hand, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter two, verse 10. And so the power for everything that we do in life comes from God, so guess what? He gets all the glory. And that's what Paul said, to him be the glory. That's what Paul wanted more than anything else is for God to be glorified. And specifically in the church, this new group of Jews and Gentiles chosen by God to be reconciled to him and one another through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, reminding the church reminding us of the vital connection that we have in Christ, that we are connected to Christ. He is the head, we are the body. He mentions that in chapter four and also chapter five. To all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church of Jesus Christ stands as an eternal witness of God's wisdom, his love, his grace, his power, his glory which is all of his attributes rolled into one. But if we seek our own glory, God won't bless anything that we do. But if his glory is our highest goal, our ultimate priority, then there's no limit to what God can accomplish in and through our lives and in and through the life of this church. Beloved, the more we by the grace of God, attain to this level of spiritual growth and maturity, the more God will be glorified and honored in your life, my life, and the life of this church. I wanna be faithful to pray this for you this year. I would ask you to be faithful to pray this for me this year. Let's pray this prayer for one another this year. And let's see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, I pray with Paul that we would be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we would be filled up to all the fullness of God so that you would be able to do great and mighty things in our lives, in the life of this church so ultimately you would be glorified, Christ would be exalted 
both now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.